The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. On this episode of Jaws of Justice, host David Bell speaks with Consuelo Ross, president, CEO, and founder of Surviving the Odds Incorporated. Consuelo is a breast cancer survivor who realized her true mission is to educate, support, and bring awareness to breast cancer and how it affects women of color. The mission of Surviving the Odds is to decrease the mortality rate in African-American women by increasing awareness, resources, and education pertaining to breast cancer and breast health. Surviving the Odds will do this by attacking breast cancer to reverse the devastating impact it has had on African-American women through community participatory partnerships and a systematic patient navigation approach. People of color continue to face many health and health care disparities that adversely impact their overall health and well-being. These disparities have been exacerbated by the uneven impacts of our health care system, which requires access to medical insurance. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now... Our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Today is our third show in our Empathy series. We began the series with Dr. Nicole Price discussing her new book, Spark the Heart. We then spoke with retired KCPD officer Kim Shaw Ellis. We learned that empathy is the ability, whether cognitively or emotionally, to place ourselves in another person's shoes and see the world from that person's perspective. Today, I want to shift gears a little and talk about empathy in a slightly different way. Specifically, I want to talk about our decision on who we want to be empathetic with and the impact of that decision. A few days ago, I received an article from Dr. Price, and the article was about a recent study regarding algorithms used by self-driving cars. In sum, if you're a person with darker skin, you may be more likely to be hit by a self-driving car than your lighter skin counterpart. And there we have it, biased algorithms. It sounds almost comical if that bias couldn't cause real pain and suffering to people. The problem was that the object detection models had mostly been trained on examples using light-skinned pedestrians. The question I ask for the audience is, should creators of algorithms take into account darker-skinned pedestrians in making their models? The answer seems obvious, but yet it was not done. Today we're going to talk about systems and their application to breast cancer among women of color, where we will see some of the very same issues arise. To help us with our discussion, we welcome Consuelo Ross, Ms. Ross is the founder of Surviving the Odds, Inc., an organization dedicated to empowering minority women as they navigate their breast cancer journey by focusing on health, wellness, and a take-action attitude. The organization also strives to decrease the health disparity faced by women of color. Ms. Ross, thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me today. Could you briefly tell us a little bit about, kind of, in terms of background, where you grew up? Well, I grew up in Illinois. I actually lived in Chicago for quite some time, went to high school there, and I left for college and went to school in Wichita, Kansas. Oddly enough, um, the other side of my family lived in Wichita, Kansas, so went there for school, and I was at school for approximately three years before I got word that my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm. 
And when I got word of that, of course, um, nothing else mattered. Had to hurry up and get back home. I didn't know what the situation was going to be. But wanted to make sure I got back home to be the person to navigate her, if you will, not knowing that I was actually filling the shoes of a navigator at the time, but to navigate her through this process and myself just to get educated on what this really meant for her and me. And, and so let's talk about that. Your mother's name is Deborah. Her name is Deborah, yes. Deborah. And tell us a little bit about Deborah. Certainly. So my mother, she grew up in a smaller city in Illinois called Quincy, Illinois, and predominantly white city. Um, she went to a Catholic school. She uh, married at a very young age and had me, well, my brother first, but had children at a very young age. She wasn't educated beyond high school. Um, she was a stay-at-home mother because at the time our father was in the military. Uh, we weren't a traveling military family. Ultimately, she became a single parent raising two children. So um, that sort of life was hard for us. She had two jobs. We didn't really see our mom that much. She worked in the evening as a radio dispatcher for a police department, and during the day, she just did odd jobs. And we were a product of the system. So we received public assistance for health insurance. We received public assistance for food. We received food stamps. And she made too much money for us to get public assistance for more financial support. So life was still a struggle for us. But we didn't know that we were poor because our life just didn't depict being poor. We had a lot of love. We lived in a the projects where most black people lived and their families, whether it's single families or multiple families. And yeah, it's just like, you know, you have neighbors that care for you. Everyone's in the same situation. The circumstances are the same. So you don't really know that you're poor until someone else brings it to your attention that you're poor. But was your mother in a position to go yearly for, for her own health? Well, she was in a position to do it because we did have health insurance through the system. But being a single parent with two children, kind of navigating life for the three of us on our own, she didn't take the time. It wasn't as important. And I don't think that the awareness of how health in general was just more of a secondary conversation in our household. So I don't know that there was a, a, a spark of it's, it's important for me to make sure that I go get this done, whether it's a well woman's check or more specifically a breast mammogram it just wasn't front of mind because there were so many other things that took precedence in our household. And, and I got the impression when we've talked before that it was very much about a survival now. There's a lot going on right now. And anything about health, unless it's unless I can see it or feel it at this moment, that's something out in the future. And now I'm going to take care of my children and me and now. Yeah, that's exactly it. it. It's all about what's in your face. What is my greatest challenge right now? I got mouths to feed. I got bills to pay. I need to figure out my transportation to and from work, which oftentimes was a bus system. I got to make sure that my kids feel loved and well taken care of when I'm absent at these two jobs. And then there's no convenience when you're working two jobs. If you're working in the day, when you try to make doctor's appointments and you, you don't have the flexibility of getting to that doctor's appointment and then at night you're at work too, it's just there just wasn't, it wasn't important. And so when did your mom discover that there may be something wrong? Well, oddly enough, uh, when my mother was diagnosed, it was late stage. Let's start with that. She originally found a lump and uh, her breasts, it had all the characteristics of what we know to be symptoms of breast cancer. But the lack of education and knowing about breast cancer, mind you, this was back in 1994. Mm -hmm. So the understanding of what breast cancer was and identifying the symptoms of breast cancer just wasn't front of mind for her. So when she went to the doctor, it was because she had an inflamed breast. She was having a secretion from her breast. When we went to the doctor, he diagnosed it as a bug bite, possibly a spider bite. He diagnosed her and then had given her some ointment 
and told her to apply the ointment. And if it doesn't clear up in seven days, come back. So within that seven days, the secretion, which was pus originally, turned into blood. We went back in seven days, actually. And we met with a different doctor. And this doctor was doing his residency in Quincy, Illinois, at this hospital that we went to. He knew immediately, just on the onset, looking at her breast, what it was. And then he got the ball rolling on everything we needed to do to address the issue of what was clearly breast cancer. So just to be clear, that was almost a random, like, chance that this doctor was doing a residency that happened to see your mom that day because the other doctor may have, what, given more ointment or we don't know. Have no idea. The other doctor, he was an older gentleman, too. When I think about it now, he was probably in his retirement age. So being in a small town, Quincy, Illinois, you have a doctor who's in his retirement age, and then you have this young doctor who's a resident to fulfill his requirements for medical school who's just, it was a godsend. Had it not been for that position, I I really don't know. Because I, even being a young, intelligent woman, I considered myself even at that age, I still didn't know much about breast cancer. And I, I, I equate that to where we were at that particular time in our lives, being in small town USA and not really having the technology and not having the information that's disseminated you know, across communities about breast cancer and the seriousness and the impact on women of color. None of that. None of that. We didn't talk about that. Within our communities, it wasn't like today you can go into any hospital and there's all sorts of information, pamphlets, awareness, and things to look for. There was none of that. That that visual aid was not even available back then. And the other thing that you'd mentioned is that you would later discover, and we'll talk about your journey uh, next, but you later discovered that there's cancer throughout your family, various members, that you had not known about. Yeah. And, and why is that, do you think? If you could, if Looking back now, it may be more obvious, but, but why do you think that was? I would have to say maybe two reasons. One is just having the conversation. I think when you and I had our initial discussion, I said that if you don't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Right. And that was a lot of what took place in our household and probably many black households. We don't talk about this, the seriousness of, of health disparities or if mom had it or dad had it or sisters or brothers, siblings, aunts, uncles. And we don't go that far back to even, we don't know. We don't have those discussions, which is different in different ethnic groups. I mean, right. they talk about those things all the time, but we don't. And I and I would like to say, from my own personal experience, I think it's because we don't go to the doctors to know that we have diabetes or cancer or heart disease or any of those things. We, we self-medicate, we self-diagnose, and we just kind of keep it moving. And when I say we, I'm talking about people of color, simply because we don't have the luxury of dealing with the illness the medical follow-ups, the cost of medicine, the cost of surgeries, that's just not our luxury. You know, lack of access to health care not only impacts the individuals who have that lack of access, but then if their health history is not known, then it can't be known to the next generation, Absolutely. right? And so mm-hmm. someone passes away, they got sick, something happened, they died, we know that, but we can't tell you what it is because they didn't necessarily go to the doctor at that time. Sure. And so that remains a secret almost as to what that was. And had that knowledge been gained at that time, it may have helped treatment in the next generation that got the same Absolutely. disease. So your mom then went to a doctor and she had to make a choice at that point with regard to the treatment of the breast cancer. Mm-hmm. 
what was that choice? So she made a decision to have the lumectomy. But I think it was just really because she wasn't fully knowledgeable of what this means for her, or how this is going to impact her, because there was no, well, you have triple negative, you have a lumectomy, there's a greater chance of it coming back, and the survival rate is statistically five years. That wasn't communicated to us. And I think as a woman, when you think about, well, I, I need to get this out of me, but I don't want to lose the appearance or the feeling or everything that makes me a woman a woman. As I look back on it now, that could have been the reason why she made the decision she made. We never had, again, never had that conversation. So the decision was a lumectomy. And ultimately, the whole breast had to be removed. And just so I understand, a lumectomy would be removing just the portion that's considered the tumor. Yes. But she ultimately had to have... She had to have the entire breast removed. And it was because of the way the cancer had spread. In hindsight, had we known differently, we would have likely had both breasts removed. But but when you're sitting with a doctor, and I know you went, you were the navigator at that point, and that's something we'll talk about later. But you, you essentially were that role before you even founded your organization. You were living it at that moment. Sure. How was the information presented? It almost sounds kind of stoic. There wasn't a, there wasn't a caring. There wasn't an empathy, a, a feeling of this person is 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 here to see me through a a difficult process. It's hard to deliver information, and you don't know if the recipient is actually understanding everything you're saying. So I'm 22 at the time. My mother is just emotional. So a lot of the times it was just me really trying to understand what he's saying. But even with that, the delivery is is like okay, well this is what you have. This is what we need to do. But there wasn't information on the impact of what was going on with this. What what was the long-term care or nothing about long-term, which I think would have been more helpful. When I think about the conversation we were having with the physician then, I don't know if it was delivered with any kind of empathy at all. It was just him doing his job to give us the information the best way he could about what we needed to do to address this cancer. But but was there an attempt on the doctor's part to understand you or your mother to make sure that you understood what he was saying? So no. He, okay. No, no. As I said, he was doing the best that he could to deliver the information, not with any sense of, I need you to understand. Mm-hmm. I also, and you know what, that's a great question that you asked because I remember, and to this day I have my mother's medical records, but I remember reading the notes where the doctors felt like we were in denial. They wrote that. And it wasn't a sense of denial. It was really a sense of, I don't understand. And that's the one thing my mother kept saying. And in her saying that, in his attempt to explain, I didn't understand either, but I didn't. This was, I felt like this was her opportunity to make sure that the doctor was communicating to her effectively. And in that, I would have been effectively for me as well. I remember reading those notes where it said that we were in denial. And that wasn't our situation. It's just we didn't we didn't get it. It's it's, it's we didn't understand. And, and looking back on that, and we'll talk about your experience again next. But looking back on that, what do you think was missing there from his presentation? Meaning, what could he have done to put you and your mother in a better place of understanding? The education of of breast cancer in its entirety, as I mentioned, the original physician misdiagnosed it as a spider bite altogether. Misdiagnosed. Right. But he wasn't even engaging as we were dealing with the resident doctor. So the resident doctor is bringing information that is not currently in this hospital. And I think that that may have been difficult to him because there's not the literature. There's not the help. There's not a breast center. This is not this hospital's focus. 
So I think that we would have had to absolutely been educated on what breast cancer is. And we know now what it is, but we had no idea that even with the triple negative diagnosis, it would have took my mother out in five years. I don't feel like there was a sense of of optimism with the diagnosis, but they didn't prepare us at all. I think that the focus at that particular time was we just have to address this cancer. Not but the, with not, no but education. Not, not the person. Not the, the person. No, definitely not the person. Right. We have to address this cancer, and that's the best we can do right now. Your mom eventually had her breast removed, and then she went through chemo? Yes. She was actually on chemo for the remainder of her life, which was five years after she had her breast removed. And the chemo at that particular time was not targeted chemo. It was the absolute worst chemo. It's just attacking all cancer. It's not, and it's it was harsh on her. So, um, you know, losing the hair, losing the nails, losing feeling in her fingers and in her feet and just just losing weight. And it was it was the worst. I mean, can, uh, chemotherapy today is much different than it was then, but it wasn't designed to just focus on any kind of estrogen, progesterone, HER2 gene, none of that. It was just the harshest chemo possible. And that's the way I remember it. That may not be accurate, right. but that's the way I remember it. Let's fast forward a little bit then, and, and at some point in your life, if you could talk about, you notice a lump on your breast. I did. And if you could describe that process. Sure. So having gone through that journey with my mother, of course, I, I knew, you know, the characteristics of breast cancer, the things to look out for, and I knew that I was at high risk. I was taking a shower one day, and that's where I found the lump, just simply putting soap on my body and found the lump. Knew immediately what it was. So when I got out... I was was making a phone call to my best friend, first of all, to share with her. Um, she was in the medical field, and I had some struggles because I had lost my husband a year before. And to make sure that I had money coming into the home, I had two children. We had two children. And uh, just to make sure that I had enough money coming into the household to support me and the family, I didn't have the best insurance, didn't have the right insurance, not the complete coverage that I needed. At the age of 34, I would have never thought that I would have been hit with any kind of illness or cancer in this case. Which is to say you couldn't pick a doctor. I could not. Go to. It, wouldn't, nope. it wouldn't be covered. It would not have been covered. So how do you decide then where to go? With well, um, it, it, was, it was understanding that there are imaging centers that you can pay for a mammogram, and which you can. They're not associated with a doctor, but once you receive your image, that image has to be connected to a physician to read the image and you know, discuss your next steps with you. So my main thing was just to get the image done and still not having a doctor at that particular time. I just wanted to know what I was dealing with. So I went to an imaging center to do just that. And I made the appointment. It was in the evening. I was the last patient. And that was by design. I didn't want to, you know, make a big fuss about it. But I had to pay, I think it was about $225 I had to pay out of pocket because I didn't have the insurance. I was underage. I was 34 at the time. And the only reason why they were willing to do it, and typically they would not unless you had a referral, but the only reason why they were willing to do it is because of my mother's breast cancer journey and the fact that I found a lump. So they did a sonogram initially, and then they had to do the mammogram. And when they did the mammogram, that's when they found the tumor. And the physician was confident in what it was and shared that news with me and explained to me that I absolutely had to contact my doctor the next day for the next steps because um, it was a pretty large mass 
and we needed to be aggressive in our actions moving forward. And when I received that news, he was very thorough in his delivery. I knew exactly what he was saying to me, uh, not being able to diagnose what type of cancer, but knowing uh, visually that it looked like it could have possibly been cancer. I just received the information and said, okay, thank you. And when I, I walked out the, the building and got into my car, the, the nurse comes running out the door and she asked me if I understood what was said to me. And I said, yes. And I can see the, the tears in her eyes as she was trying to make sure that I was okay with the fact that um, I had a pretty large tumor. So when she came out to you, it was, she had tears in her eyes and it was, as you understood the message now, or at least looking back, she didn't think you got it, right? She didn't think you understood the, the danger that yeah. you were facing, the immediacy of it. And so what does she say to you? So she, she wanted to make sure that I was clear on what I, she said, um, it is imperative that you contact your doctor tomorrow. You need to move quickly on this. It's a very large mass. And she's looking me in my face, and I'm just shaking my head because I completely understood what she said. But in my mind, I wasn't thinking about the cancer itself. I immediately started thinking about my children who just lost their father the year before. So in my mind, I'm processing the business of things as opposed to the actual issue of things. So I said, no, I, I understand, I understand. And then she asked me who my doctor was. And I didn't have a doctor, so she gave me a referral. She told me who the doctor was, and then she would fax my images over to that physician. And that was a godsend because she sent my referral to a very well-known breast surgeon that was here in Kansas City for quite some time who educated me and worked with me and navigated this whole journey in ways that I, I could have never imagined. Just based on my experience with my mother, it was just it was just. But, but the contrast was so different. And and the, the doctor wound up being at Menorah that wound up being taken over by KU. Yes. So you wound up being at the best place ever. The best place ever. When you first get that referral, so the, this nurse is standing outside at the imaging center and she's saying, hey, you got to go to this gym. I mean, or this doctor, are you thinking, my God, I... I just paid like two hundred dollars for. I mean, how I can't. I don't have insurance for doc. This, this the best breast cancer doctor ever. And mm -hmm. so, is that thought going through your mind? And then, and then, what do you wind up doing? Well, what I was actually thinking is, uh, I hope she's not giving me a referral. She knows I don't have insurance. I hope she's not referring me to someone who can't help me. But I didn't know what that would have looked like. I didn't know in my mind. I was thinking, well, hopefully she's giving me a referral and I'll be able to go through this process, not knowing that. If I didn't have the right insurance, I, I would not be seen. I, I just didn't know. This was all new to me in that regard. When I met with the doctor, when I got a call from the doctor's office, the first thing I said is, I don't have insurance. And she said, that's okay. Mm. We want to see you. And I that just floored me because I, that just doesn't happen. But being that, to me, that's all divine intervention. It really is. This, this, it, my whole journey, my whole journey from my mother's journey up to my journey to today, it's nothing in my mind but God putting me on this pathway. Because there, there was a sense of understanding or having this level of expectation, which was just doom and gloom for a woman of color with breast cancer. So when I got diagnosed and I, and I went through the imaging. I was just, I, I never had a positive thought in my mind. I really did not, David. My whole focus was, okay, prepare to die and figure out what you're going to do with your kids. And how old were your children at the time of your diagnosis? Uh, 13 and 14. I mean, how did you even know to call an imaging center? Like, it, why would that idea even come up? Yeah, because my, my best friend, she, she was, has been in the medical field. 
So she has worked in the podiatrist's office at that point for like 10 years. And that's all they deal with is imaging. So she's the one that recommended, well, if you don't, because she, she said, who's your doctor? I was like, I don't have a doctor. She's like, she was shocked. You don't have a doctor. And I was like, no. You know, before my well women checkup was always out of Planned Parenthood. So I never had a doctor. So when she recommended the imaging center, I went to there and I was like, I just pay out of pocket. Typically, like I said before, they require a referral, but my situation was a little different. When you went to the doctor, could you talk about the experience with this, the doctor you wound up seeing and yeah. and, and, and her, what I'll call bedside manner? Because oh, wow. some of the things you talked about in our prior discussion were just amazing, where was she viewed her duty not only to deliver information, but to make sure that you were understanding that information. Yes, yes. And I walked into her office with the mindset of what I dealt with years prior to. I didn't expect what I actually received. So the first thing she did when she came into the room, she pulled the chair up next to me and grabbed my hands. And she said, we're going to get through this. That was the very first thing she said. Mm -hmm. It kind of shocked me. And I was just like, okay. So she um, had to prepare me for my biopsy. I had not had the biopsy. This was going to be under her care. So she explained to me different types of cancers. She said, absolutely, do not go on the Internet to read about anything I'm telling you about right. today. She said, I will guide you through all of this. She told me about the pain of the biopsy, what the biopsy, the purpose of the biopsy was for, and how that would help us make an informed decision on what we need to do moving forward. So she was very explicit in the step-by-step. -step. You know how sometimes you ask a doctor, was it going to be painful? No, we give you a topical, it numbs it. She said, it's going to be very painful. She said, I just want you to prepare yourself for it because this is just a pebble in the huge ocean. We have a long way to go. And I was like, okay. But it was that eye-to-eye -eye contact. It was her grabbing my hands and the first thing she said to me, you know, we're going to get through this. It wasn't just, hello, my name is Dr. X and yeah, I got your chart and this is what we're going to It was none of that. It was sincerity. It was she was authentic. She was genuine and so caring. She was very caring. She was Asian. And her culture looked at things like that differently. And she brought that into the room. She brought that with her profession. And it was nothing I ever experienced before. We're speaking with Consuelo Ross. She is the president, CEO, and founder of Surviving the Odds, Inc. We've been talking to Consuelo about her own breast cancer journey. And when we come back, we'll learn more about how empathy affected outcome. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. KKFI is hiring. We are now accepting applications for a bookkeeper office administrator position at KKFI's offices at 39th and Main in Midtown, Kansas City. This is a full-time 32 hours per week position that is responsible for supporting the administrative and financial needs of our growing organization. For more details, including required skills and how to apply, please go online to kkfi.org forward slash jobs. July 10 is the deadline for Jackson County homeowners to appeal reassessments. Some homeowners have seen their assessments double, reportedly forcing some to sell. Jackson County has an automated online appeal filing system. If you cannot find that, email Board of Equalization at jacksongov.org or call 816-881-3309. This message is a public service of KKVI. This is David Ballard. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Consuelo Ross. She is the president, CEO, 
and founder of Surviving the Odds, Inc. In the first half hour, we spoke to Consuelo about her mother's breast cancer journey. And in this half hour, we are going to continue our discussion about Consuelo's own breast cancer journey. And so the, the biopsy came back and it was positive for cancer. Yes. And then tell me about the treatment. And then also tell me about, I don't know, when did the doctor ask you to bring in a certain device into the room? So the very first day, she was uh, informing me and she told me, that, uh, make sure you bring a recorder to each of your appointments. A tape recorder. Yeah. So I went out and bought a little tape recorder, handheld tape recorder. And she told me, she said, you will receive information that will fall on deaf ears. She said, you want to go back and listen to everything I've said. And to this day, I still have that tape. Yeah, it was her making sure that whatever we discussed, whatever I decided, was my effort to make an informed decision. And then the one thing that she said, and I do remember this, is she said, I can't tell you what to do, but by listening to these recordings, it will help you make a decision. And I would like to help guide you through this. And I think that that's required of any doctor. They can't tell you to have a lumectomy or a mastectomy or a double mastectomy. They can't tell you what's best, but they can give you the information. But she was very adamant in, in me understanding to help me help her help me right, right. make the right decision. And you, that's what happened. You were then faced with the same decision your mother faced, which was to have a lumpectomy yes. or to have a double mastectomy. Yes. And your choice originally, it sounds like, was decision your mom made. It was. If you could talk briefly, talk to us about that and why you were wanting to make that decision originally. Yes. So uh, it, it became, you know, what I thought may have been the reasons for my mother making the decision she originally made. I understood fully why she made that decision. But I was a high risk. I was considered late stages because it was stage three and I was 34. When I thought about, okay, I could just have this removed. The real reason for me it wasn't even about, you know, just taking a piece of my womanhood from me or just it really the God's honest truth, David, was I don't have time to be out of work. I got children to take care of. I don't have any family. I don't have a support system here to help me through anything more than removing a tumor. I was really thinking about what can I do myself? So that was the original thought. But then I started thinking about my mother and what she went through and how I didn't want to go through that. But there really was no way around it. But I, it's just, it was a gamut of things. But really, it was, I'm alone in this thing. And I have two children and I have to make the right decision for them. So maybe a lumpectomy would just be a surgery, just take the tumor, rest a couple weeks, and get back to business as usual. But, but the doctor wasn't going to have that. She wasn't going to have that. And she, so when I, I was listening to the tapes, so I, when I went into my sessions with her and after we got the biopsy back and I knew exactly what I was dealing with, I went and took the tapes home. So the next doctor's appointment, because we had many sessions after that before we actually scheduled the surgery, I remember us being in the room that had a whiteboard. And I was telling her that I was going to do a, a lumectomy. And she immediately went to the whiteboard. She started drawing these circles so that I can understand. This is your tumor. And then she started talking about uh, the characteristics of the tumor. Then she started talking about the size of my tumor, the late stage diagnosis in my age. Then she started talking about your risk for survival if you don't remove both breasts. That's when it clicked for me. Because in the grand scheme of things, all that I was trying to do was to make sure I was going to be here for the, my children. And in order to do that, I had to have the double mastectomy. But, but, but you actually wound up having to delay the surgery because I, I think this was in November. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And I think you were concerned that you may pass away and you didn't want them to yeah. be alone on the that's, that's exactly it. 
So yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that I got through what I thought may have been the last holidays with my children. So when I got the, um, when the doctor was trying to schedule the surgery, I was like, well, I don't want to do it then. And she was like, well, why? And I said, well, I just want to get through Thanksgiving. Then Thanksgiving became Christmas. Then Christmas became New Year's. And then the doctor said, we have no more time. None. You have to get this done. So on January 14th, I had my surgery. And uh, yeah, I had it not been for her understanding that women of color have all these barriers, and we do. She understood the barrier from being a single mom to access, which she gave me access and she did not have to. She didn't demand that I come in with insurance or pay for And we figured it out. I mean, she's not providing free services, no, but we figured it out in a way that I didn't know was an option for me, that I qualified for a state program, that once I was diagnosed, that the state program would pick up all of the funding and take care of everything through my surgery. I didn't know anything about that, but she was able to provide that to me. She understood that, you know, I was a single mom and I had no family here. And she understood that my journey with my mother was scary for me now, dealing with my own journey. So she was very thorough in making sure I completely understood the difference between what was going on with my mother in a time where there may not have been the right medication. Maybe we were not in a place where they were very knowledgeable and certainly didn't really care. That was evident. To dealing with her who was going to educate me, create opportunities, pathways, access, guide me through this thing, and she cared genuinely. She met my children, and she talked to them just so that they would have a perspective from a, a physician's viewpoint. And it was really words of encouragement. It was never it was never a discussion of, well, children, gloom and doom, you know, this is, it was always full of life. She was always full of life, and she always hugged us. It was just a complete different experience, and it meant so much. You talked about you had double mastectomy, and mm-hmm. the one thing I learned, I learned a lot from you, but the one thing I didn't, never dawned on me is that the breast is not just the front part of the body, that right. the part that I see, I guess, but, mm-hmm. but certainly to have a double mastectomy is tremendously invasive. It is. Because it, it, if you could briefly talk about that. Yeah, so the tissue of a breast wraps around even to the, the under areas of your arms, so when I had the double mastectomy, I, they, there was cancer found in my lymph nodes, and they had to remove those lymph nodes. So when they did that on my right side, of course, they had to do it on the left side. So the left side, they're removing what is then a healthy breast, healthy breast tissue. But because they have to make sure they get so much of it, of the breast that actually wraps around, it's like cutting from under your arm all the way across your chest and it, to it, make sure you get all that tissue. And it sounded like that while you're healing, you're not really able to do any. You're, you're yeah. the, the top half of your body's done. Like you're not moving anything for no, a while. No, actually, I I really leaned on my my children, who my daughter at the time she had she had turned, she was fourteen by then, and she told her um, counselor at her school, "Well, I won't be back." staying home to take care of my mom and I didn't know she had did that but uh, I, I, I couldn't do anything I couldn't move I, I slept in a, a lazy boy chair for more than a month couldn't dress myself I couldn't do anything yeah so the mobility the upper mo- the upper body was just useless I, I couldn't the pain was excruciating and, and I just I had to I was so 
<laughs> I was so helpless and I fell into a sense of depression because I couldn't do anything for myself. I mean, I could I could feed myself, um, but I had no I had no strength to do anything else. And then when you're trying to recover, the you'll get a, a physical therapist. I got a physical therapist with as part of my team. They will have you do these exercises that is just seems impossible. But it's a long road to recovery when you have a double mastectomy. You had to do chemo eventually. I did. After that. And I, I wanted to brief one part of that was you, you talked about support groups at the time, mm-hmm. I believe, for you. for at the, But there was a... I got the impression there wasn't the same feel with the support groups at that time, and this is we give rise to the organization that you founded, but mm-hmm. that there was a, a different feeling in the support groups. If you could talk about that briefly. Sure. So when I actually started my chemo, um, again, not having the right insurance to be able to pay for that, it was this whole connection within the KU system that was most beneficial for me. So I qualified for a clinical trial. In that clinical trial, you get the best of everything. You get an entire team. So outside of going through chemo, I had a navigator who constantly checked in with me, you know, my mental health, my physical health, how was I dealing with the medication, what was going on at home. All of those things factor into how you're recovering from, you know, the the surgery itself and then chemo secondary. But there was a support group that was offered within this. And the first time I went, as I mentioned earlier, I was falling into depression and it wasn't just during recovery. It was a continual slide, downward slide. And I, I, I would not talk to anybody about it. So I would go day to day and people wouldn't know that I was just dying on the inside. So I thought it would be a good idea for me to go to a support group. So when I go to the very first time I went, I was greeted by the the person uh, facilitating the support group. Everyone else looked the same. They had common interests. They lived in, in the same areas. I was the only woman of color in that group. I didn't feel welcomed by everyone else. I felt like the conversations were not compatible. And I felt like when I started engaging because I wanted so desperately to talk about the things that were bothering me, I felt like I was looked upon like, oh, poor you. Not, Not like, we're going through this too. We're here for you. This is your, this is your village. This is your safe space. And some of the questions weren't, you know, when you're talking to someone and they just kind of want to understand things a little differently or there, it wasn't so much like we care enough to ask and to help. It was almost like we're interested in knowing why this is your situation. I just, I kind of felt like the questions weren't to help and support me, but to identify the differences between us. That's how I felt at the time. So I stopped engaging. Like once we got past me, my introduction talking about my journey, talking about the things that were bothering me, the things that I was struggling with mentally, I felt like I drew in even more. I felt like I exposed myself to a group of women who just looked at me as a spectacle. It wasn't a common conversation. It wasn't, let's rally around her. It was like, oh, wow, that's her situation. Okay, well, how about you? And it's almost like the engagement between the women were different amongst themselves than the engagement was when I shared my story. So afterwards, when I was leaving that particular focus group session, I just gathered my things and walked out and no one came up to say, it was nice to meet you, bye. You know, the only one that I spoke with was the same one I spoke with when I came in and that was the facilitator of the group session. So I was like, this is absolutely not for me. And there was no shared experience other than the breast cancer journey. But when women are talking about 
and let me just be more specific for me, when I'm talking about my barriers, my struggles, my household, uh, my community, my journey thus far, which was kind of up and down, that wasn't what I heard from everyone else. My experience was completely different. It was completely different. So I just didn't feel like they would ever understand nor make me feel welcomed to be able to share in this space. So I didn't no more. But but it sounds like, and I, I, I'd like to push a little bit here. It sounds like, well, I guess my hope is, is that had they done things differently, like the doctor did at, at Menorah versus the doctor in Illinois, that they could have. Meaning, I don't know what that difference they could have done. It sounded like they were looking at you as an other in, in a way. We talked about how they're like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry, whatever. But it, it, we talked about the difference between like sympathy. It almost more sound like sympathy more than empathy. Yes. But, but I'm wondering if if they're and they could have they the facilitator the women there in maybe being more self aware or more aware of of what the dynamics were could have made a welcoming safe space to in to include you as well so that you didn't leave with that feeling. I guess that would be my hope that 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 is possible. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe maybe that's just the- no. I I I believe it. <laughs> I believe it's possible. In the same way, I believe that you know, if if you want to, you have to intentionally be inclusive. You know, you have cliques. You have you have organizations that focus on the people that they serve, the communities they live in, and and it's no different from us. And I have to be honest about that. When I created Surviving the Odds, it was to focus on women of color. Because we're a group of women who have taken the back seat in so many different aspects of our life. We've been forced to take the back seat. So when I walked in that room and there were women who knew each other, I almost equated to, oh, they know each other. That's why they're speaking to one another. No, they knew each other through that group. And they, they, they chose to engage with one another in a way because they had common interests. And I think that when we think about how we how we engage collectively, we have to be inclusive. We have to be welcoming. So I, there is hope. I want to say that there is hope that we get to that place. I just think the intentionality has to be there. Let's talk then a little bit about surviving the odds. Uh, first of all, for people that want to check it out, the website is uh, stofoundation.org. Yes. All right. So you get the idea to do that. Mm-hmm. When and 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 then what do you do? It really was when I when I left that that very first support group. So when I think about it, that was kind of like the tail end of my, not the tail end, but close to the end of my journey. So now I'm starting to get help with my my mental piece of dealing with this breast cancer journey. I was so deflated when I left that first group session. I said, this cannot be, this cannot be our journey. This cannot be our story. And I started looking for support groups in Kansas City that were black and brown, Um, maybe owned and operated or just those who went were women of color. And I didn't find anything. So then I started making a list of all the things that I I was dealing with in my journey that it didn't have to be this difficult for a woman of color, but it is because there is no access or we don't know that the access is there. The access is there, but we don't know it. So in writing all these things down, I identified, you know, who was the best health system what did it mean for me to be in a clinical trial? I got the best to care, the best of medication, the best navigator. You know, what do we need to do to fill the gap um, on the breast cancer journey when you're talking about mental? There is a huge mental component of dealing with breast cancer that we don't even address. And I was dealing with that in that moment. 
And I didn't want anyone else to have to struggle the way I have struggled. Because the one thing I have found is when it's difficult for us people of color, if it means that it's going to take time, money, things that we don't have by default, we're not going to do it. So we have to start eliminating barriers. So that became my focus. I want to eliminate barriers and create access for women who will typically not have this available to them or readily available because it is available. It's almost like it's this hidden treasure no one knows about. But still there's obstacles like transportation. There's, there is. You've got childcare if you're if you're a single mother or yes. don't have family in town. There's there's all of these things and, and and then there seems to be this understanding. You were blessed to have this one doctor that seemed to get it. But who knows if the next person's going to have that same mm-hmm. experience. And I know one of those things that your organization does, which was a new term to me, is something called a breast cancer navigator. Yeah. And it makes so much when I first heard it, I was like, God, oh, what is that? But it makes so much sense. And if you could briefly talk about that role, and, and as you said it to me when we met before, I was thinking that's exactly what you were doing with your mom. Yeah, yeah. So what is a breast cancer navigator, and how does it work within your organization? Yes. So a breast cancer navigator is someone who goes into the room with the patient when a doctor is actually delivering the information regarding their cancer diagnosis, what their next steps look like, you know, even if they want to talk to them about the potential of, in my case, a clinical trial. So it's not something that a navigator does one-on-one with the patient. It is with the patient and the patient's family. Because what we are equipped to do is be able to take that information and really convey it in layman's terms. Layman's terms, And with that, it helps the family fully understand. And as a navigator, I share my own experience because it's helpful Because when you hear cancer, that's all you hear. And it's almost like it's a death sentence. No matter what kind of cancer it is, it's like I'm going to die or I don't know what to do or no one in my family's gone through this. I don't have this background and what to expect. So I share my own experience because I felt like I've had a pretty rough journey, a pretty rough journey. But just making sure that the family understands when they're giving a medical term or when a doctor is not communicating with them in a way that is effective and and you can reasonably understand the one thing I always say to a patient is, is when you hear the word cancer, you'll be surprised about how much more information you miss past that. So it is my job to make sure that they get every ounce of information they need. And I don't do that just by regurgitating what I heard. I take a tape recorder in the room and I give them that tape. And it's not the tape, just the tape of the doctor and what the doctor is communicating. It's what I then follow up to say, this is what the doctor said. This is what this means. This is what this could look like. This is what you should probably be preparing for. What does your support system look like? So I think with that, you're giving them well-rounded information at the very end. What do your support system look like? That's the most critical piece of this whole patient navigation journey is the support. I know you created a support group Mm -hmm. or support groups so that women of color wouldn't have to go through what you went through. Could you talk about that and also talk about some of the unique some of the things that are unique to women of color that are going through these experiences and what may be shared within those groups that that I may not fully appreciate. Mm-hmm. So we found it very interesting that um, there are certain hospitals that have their own support groups. But um, when you think about the different ethnic groups that you're dealing with, whether it's Latin, Asian, Black, there are certain things within those cultures that we need to be sensitive to. And for women of color, we are the matriarchs of our family and sometimes our community. So much so that 
we put ourselves last on the list. We take care of family. We take care of communities. We take care of extended family before we take care of ourselves. And I think that's one of the that's one of the the plights of a black woman in our groups. We can talk about that openly, whether it's understanding that this is what we do, that we probably need to dial back and not do. You know, sometimes it takes someone hearing what you've done. You know, I, I take care of my, my kids, my five kids. I got three grandkids and I take them everywhere and, and I work three jobs and my daughter, she doesn't work. Those are the kind of conversations we have. Those are our lived experiences. And sometimes it takes hearing that from a black woman to another black woman for them to say, you you got to stop that. Or there are agencies to help with that. Or there are community outreach programs that you should be sending those children. There's just, just a gamut of information that we know that we bring together collectively. And the support is there because this is our community and we understand this is what we do for one another. When we think about our access and when we think about our barriers, it doesn't seem like a barrier until it is the barrier. When you think about transportation, we think about East of Truce, we think about the public transportation that we have that isn't always accessible for us. So how do we navigate through that? You know, we can, we can coalesce around, well, listen, Swope Parkway has this transportation system that can help you get from your home to your doctor's appointment. And this is what I learned. But the conversations are the same because we all have the same lived experience. I think the way we help each other is unique because we have grown up with the concept that we are a village. I think I mentioned to you before, um, before today's discussion that I grew up in the projects not knowing that this is the project, this is a confined housing complex for black people. So <laughs> I may not have shared this with you, but if I got in trouble and my neighbor saw me getting in trouble, then she could spank me and take <laughs> me home to my mama and tell me she spanked me because I got in trouble. Wow. But that was acceptance. That was our village. And to this day, we still have that sense of a village. And we're very covenant of that. We're very protective of that. But the black woman is the end all to her family. And sometimes it's the detriment of her. But those are conversations we can have. And those are conversations that someone outside of our culture may not understand. And I'll just say this just plainly, you know, a, a privileged race can have a nanny. They can have a child that goes to boarding school. They can have a vacation home someplace else and separate themselves from the day-to-day -day grind of just being a family unit. We will never have that, or we do not. I should not say never. We do not have that luxury right now. So they will never understand how we deal with our family dynamics or the dynamics of dealing with your community because your family is just not who's in your four walls or who's your, you know, blood relatives. It's those that you live, work, and play with in your community. And we really do... We honor that as, as a black race. When we, before we begin the interview, you showed me a video uh, of something else that your organization does that mm -hmm. I thought was really cool. Mm -hmm. um, it, a bus that was with, it, it looked like a celebration almost. Yeah. Uh, and if you could talk briefly about that. So when we first started the organization, we were trying to address the, the barrier of transportation, the barrier of education, uh, breast health and breast cancer in women of color. So that, the education piece. we. We were adamant about getting the messaging out to be proactive as opposed to being reactive to a diagnosis. How do we even prevent this? How do we de decrease disparity in breast 
uh, health diagnosis. So originally when I first started doing this, I, I, I didn't know how I was going to do it other than bring information. So I used to go to community centers. I would partner up with various hospitals that would bring information in about breast health and breast cancer. And we would do what we call clinical breast exams on site. Well, a clinical breast exam is not, you know, it's not technology motivated. It's basically you just checking your breasts. But even with that, because of the makeup of most black women's breasts, we have high dense tissue in our breasts. Most of us do. We can find something and not know if it's, you know, a cyst, just fatty tissue. So there's still that fear. So if you're learning how to do a clinical breast exam on yourself and you feel something, now you're fearful because like, oh, my gosh, I felt a lump. So I had to think that through. It's like, I don't want this to be the experience of these women who may or may not follow up because they may or may not have insurance. So let's do something different. So a friend of mine had a fleet of party buses in Kansas City. And those buses were really for actual parties. Like there were poles on there. There were, there, there's like music, there's TVs in the walls, there's a bar on the bus. And I just simply asked him, can we partner to have this bus transport women out of a designated area of the community to an imaging center for a, a morning mammogram party? So I called them the mammogram party parties. But with that, we would partner with uh, faith-based organizations or women's group or just have a group of women get 30 of their girlfriends together to get on this party bus and um, journey over to an imaging center for the ultimate party. We would greet them as they come off the bus. They would get swag bags. It'd be a celebration. Thank you for coming out with us today to get your mammogram. And within the building, we would have food. We'd have entertainment. We've had other uh, health services like blood pressure checks and massages and just things to make it a fun experience. And while we have the ear of all these women, we dial it back to the importance of this day. It's not just about the party. Yes, we were happy that you were able to bring your girlfriends together for this most important screening, but let's learn a, bit, learn a little bit more about breast cancer and how it's impacting women of color and what we need to do to responsibly carry the message forward to be proactive. Uh, for early detection, because that's how we save lives. Well, and, and I love the video because it was very life affirming, right? And 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 it was just like, all right, this is our experience. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to do it. We're going to learn something. We're going to have fun doing it, instead of this kind of uh, sorrow filled, fear based, kind of in the shadows type thing. And we kind of know we don't know. Let's just have it out in the open. This is what women go through. There, there needs to be this screening. Let's celebrate women in this way. Yeah. That's what it seemed. That was so wonderful. And so, so today now, if we, if we, if people want to learn more about surviving the odds, Inc., they go, can go to stofoundation.org. Yes. And is there anything coming up in the near future, or what? What is uh, the foundation doing? Yes. So we have not had a mammogram party since COVID, and because of those reasons, we found other ways to contribute to the education and the research of breast cancer. So we've been working with some local hospitals in regards to clinical trials. And we have been working within community on focus groups to understand the experiences of women of color and how we can change the dynamic from the entire journey. From the time you walk into a medical facility, how are you impacted by the people you meet, the physicians you sit with, the information you receive in the, in the room with the physician, and the next steps on your journey, what does that look like? So that's been real critical work that we've been doing but we are gearing up for a mammogram party and we want to incorporate all of those women who have been a part of the party in years past. 
So we serviced over 600 women oh, wow. when we started doing the mammogram parties. And then COVID hit and we haven't done anything. We shifted uh, what we were doing. But we have been talking about this for the last six months because we feel it's important to just touch base with everyone we've done work with to encourage them to continue. Because the one thing I have learned about us, we don't always follow through with what we should be doing. It's always great when someone's there to encourage you and be there and say, hey, I have a bus, let's do this. But then that next year, who's to say whether or not your situation will allow you or prompt you to be able to stay on top of your breast health and make sure you're getting that annual screening. So we still have our partners with most hospitals. We have a partnership with Unity Health, University Health, excuse me, uh, KU. We do work with Shawnee Mission and primarily because these hospitals have that very important program on the Missouri side, Show Me Healthy Women. If you are a woman who um, has uh, no insurance or you're underinsured or you don't have a job or your job doesn't pay you a sizable amount of income, you can qualify to get free breast and cervical screenings on the Missouri side. And on the Kansas side, it's called Early Detection Works. And those hospitals that I mentioned um, have a navigator that can help you sign up for those programs as well as surviving the odds. We can do that as well. But um, that's that's a part of access that a lot of women, and it just, it's mind-boggling how that is not more forward-facing in our communities, especially our underserved communities, of that type of access that we actually have. And if people want to learn more, again, they can go to www.stofoundation.org. As well, Ross, thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing sharing your story with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD. 